And welcome to our weekly Book Nook segment from the Quincy Public Library. Katie Krauschauer is here. Hi there. Hi. Well, we've got some really cool stuff to talk about today. And uh, as we record this, it's kind of rainy and nasty, but we are not near any hurricane conditions. But we're going to talk about that a little bit. Yes. So we are reading Isaac's Storm, A Man, a Time, and the Deadliest Hurricane in History by Eric Larson. Um, this is going to be a discussion book for our bookies in March. That is the first Wednesday of March at 1.30, if anybody would like to join us. And this is just one of those fascinating books. First of all, I love Eric Larson as an author. I think he just does a phenomenal job with his research, but also making it relatable and readable for his nonfiction. This one specifically deals with the kind of the origin of the National Weather Bureau and the Galveston hurricane in 1900. Um, Isaac Klein was the agent that had been assigned to Galveston in 1900 or, you know, for several years he'd been down there and he was living there with his family. Galveston was a boom town at that point. It was, you know, it was really rivaling Houston as the place to be on the Texas coast. And people were flocking to it. They had great businesses, bathhouses, you know, one of everything. I mean, it truly was one of those enormous places that was verged on you know, rivaling what we would consider today the biggest towns in the United States, those cities. Um, But in 1900, when the hurricane hit, it wiped out thousands of houses, thousands of people died, um, and truly was then the reason why people moved to Houston, and that became the the place that we know it as today. Um, But Larson just does an amazing job gathering those tidbits of information and truly creating a narrative out of whatever is left, taking those primary sources and making it a story that people want to read. Um, Isaac Klein was living in Galveston with his brother, who also worked for the National Weather Bureau. His family was there. They went to school a few blocks away. They talk about all of the, you know, the industry, the business, the people that were there, you know, kind of those big names. And the morning of September 8th, um, you know, he kind of woke up and his brother said, there's a, you know, there's something going on. There's something going on with the barometer. The pressure is off. Things are happening. And so he went out, did some observations that, you know, and was reporting back to the Weather Bureau in Washington, D.C. And they kind of poo-pooed it. Oh, no, it can't possibly be as bad as you're predicting. You know, they, this isn't going to be bad. It had been deadly hot, you know, for weeks in a row, this is August and September of 1900, no um, no air conditioning to speak of, no relief in the evenings. Um, one of the great tidbits that Larson adds is that they were advertising new bathing suits made out of mohair with collars and cuffs of mohair. And I'm like, I wouldn't put that on in the dead of winter. That sounds itchy. <laughs> Much less in August to go bathing in. Um, but, you know, the, those types of, of tidbits are what make it real, and it, that's what you remember. Um, and so Klein tried very hard to alert the people of Galveston that this was happening and was not getting anywhere. Um, he actually lost his wife and was worried that he was going to lose his entire family because of it. All of his neighbors were, you know, a lot of his neighbors were killed. His own house was wiped out by the hurricane. There are some great maps at the beginning that kind of show where the path was that the hurricane took. Um, And, of course, then the government being the government, the Weather Bureau kind of threw him under the bus and blamed him for not doing enough to protect the people of Galveston. And he was then sent off to New Orleans to be in charge of that Weather Bureau, and they they definitely did not want him to be right about anything. 
in the future. And, uh, you know, and again, you're talking, we're, we're not talking, we're talking 120 some years ago where, you know, weather forecasting was a very, you know, in its infancy, you didn't have the technology and things you have now. Um, so, you know, you look at this and a guy like, uh, like, like Isaac Klein, who's, you know, trying to, you know, he's the one studying this. He's the one doing this. It's not like he's on television with his top button unbuttoned and his tie askew and all this. <laughs> he's like, try, you know, not like mm-hmm. weathermen we see today, um, you know, and he's trying to do that. But, but even though, you know, we had all this technology a hundred years later with Katrina, people really didn't jump yes. and get you know, busy like they should have when that storm was bearing down. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's part of it, too, is is knowing, okay, it was sketchy at best. He was out there timing the distance between the waves that were coming in on Galveston Beach and trying to measure how high the swells were and, you know, guessing how far inland it was going to come based on his own observations, not any technological software that was out there, no radar, no sonar, no, you know, nothing that would help him in those ways. And so for him to recognize that it was going to be that devastating of a storm and try to get people to recognize it, you know, try to say the trains aren't going to be able to get off. And of course, Galveston being an island, you're stuck. You know, um, the aftermath, you know, they were, Larson explains that there were people that, you know, came across using the railway trestles to kind of guide their own homemade rafts to get onto the island to search for people. And, you know, boats, boats running into dead bodies, the corpses that had floated out to sea, um, the town across the way, burying people that had floated across, you know, in that, in that aftermath after it happened. Um, so yeah, we, we really have no excuse at this point in our lives to not listen to those emergency evacuations and, and say, you know, if they're, if they're truly serious about this, you want to stay, that's on you, but do everything you can to mitigate that damage. Yeah. It's, uh, again, and, but I, I think, you know, a lot of times when, uh, you know, the, now we have the chicken little effect kind of every yes. time the weather guy breaks in or the weather gal breaks in and, and people roll their eyes and it's like, hey, I'm trying to watch the football game. But a lot of times these things are very serious now. Mm-hmm. If it's a flash flood in a creek that's in, you know, uh, Monroe County or something, maybe not unless you live in Monroe County. But still, they I get it. They have a job to do. And, and again, they are they want people to listen because, you know, you look at worst case scenario – 120 years ago when people didn't listen. Yes. And even with the storms that we've had this month that are the snowstorms, you know, making sure that you listen when they say stay off the roads. Please don't drive because it's icy conditions. The the, the winds are going to force you off the road. They really have a purpose behind saying that. So and please be careful. Don't park on the snow emergency route. That's the other one. <laughs> yes, so. exactly. Uh, you have another book coming up here, The History of the World in Six Glasses. That sounds interesting. Yes. So this is non-water, non-animal product beverages. Um, so not milk or, or water or fruit juice or something like that. This is three different kinds of beverages that have alcohol in them and three different kinds of beverages that have caffeine in them. Um, Beer, wine and spirits, coffee, tea, and soft drinks. Um, Tom Standage, I keep forgetting his name. Tom Standage is the author and he takes you through kind of chronologically of what impact each of those beverages had as it was developed and then you know how did society change because of it. And so of course then he starts off with beer 
um, in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia over in the Middle East, you know, that is kind of where those cereal grains first developed. And the hunter-gatherers who had been in that area for however long, um, you know, I don't even pretend to try to keep track of dates and, and numbers on that front, but, you know, they realized that this was a good food source. Well, if you have a good food source that is stationary as opposed to being your herds of roving goats or camels or whatever, you need to have a place to store that and then also a place that you can live to protect it so that someone else doesn't come along and take it. And so that cereal grain then, of course, ferments if stored too long and can be turned into things that use yeast and things that can turn into beverages like beer. So even starting with the um, Phoenicians and the, the cuneiform tablets and things like that, those were ways of tracking how much cereal grain, beer, bread was being brought in to the, to the you know, ruling class and how much then was being paid back out to sustain the life of the people in those cities. Um, they talk even about Ur and Babylon and some of the, the very earliest cities that we think of using bread and beer as kind of that almost currency form because it was so much easier to keep track of that than to measure out bushels of grain, um, but also developed accounting and writing because of that, because they had to have a way of tracking who brought in what amount and and what did they come and take it and use it or would did we use it to pay someone else to do that and he does that with each of the each of the different beverages that he talks about you know using rum and whiskey in the slave trade during the age of exploration and you know kind of that triangle of trade that was going on in the americas during the 16 1700s and then with coffee and how the british used tea and coffee to kind of create their empire um, and of course Coca-Cola, the global sensation, the global phenomenon with soda pop, just the different ways that that people have been able to use that to create these global brands. Um, just a fascinating story. Great, great work done by the author and a really fun audiobook to listen to. Well, and of course, we ended up, you know, basically fighting a war over tea and taxation and all that right. and getting our independence and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't put cocaine in uh, Coca-Cola anymore. So, no. you know. I would like to have tried it back then. Maybe, you know, had a it little more It would be kick. an interesting, <laughs> interesting experiment to see what does that actual, what does that do to our brains and our bodies if we actually had that. And uh, no, I think that's, uh, again, when you look at, uh, I, I think that, you know, and you mentioned the government, the government has, the, has, has taxed most of these things. Now. Oh, yes. Now it's that, you know, well, of course, everything gets taxed pretty much. But, you know, you look at all these things that have been, produ- that have been produced and, oh, yeah, there's a beer on, there's a tax on that, there's a tax on that, there's a tax on that. Mm-hmm. So any kind yes. of sales tax or, or what have you. So Well, and the way that it turned into gathering places, the coffee houses right. of the, you know, that Age of Enlightenment or the tea shops or, you know, whatever it happened to be um he i didn't get so far as to go into like the gin houses or anything in victorian england but that was also very much a thing you know it was it would warm you up kind of and keep you alive until the next day so you could go and earn your pittance and still today we have you know coffee houses and we have Mm -hmm. beer you have bars and so it's uh it's something that certainly uh, stood the test of time uh the last the last thing is uh, you want to talk a little bit about canopy yes canopy is one of the streaming services that quincy public library offers and with your library card you can create an account and you then you will have up to eight item eight circulations, eight checkouts, whatever you want to call them, um, up to eight movies, documentaries, or television episodes every calendar month. And the one that I chose 
when I first started using the Canopy service was actually one of those series of like the World Heritage sites. Um, they have 25 different videos, 26 different videos. You can go with them and they do a historical overview of things like the Acropolis or Angkor Wat or the Great Barrier Reef, you know, kind of those amazing places that most of us will never get to visit in person, but you can learn about the buildings, you can learn about how they were created, or in the case of the Great Barrier Reef, how how it impacts the country that it is next to, you know, how does it change the ecosystem or the habitat or the environment of that area. Um, just an amazing opportunity to really use your armchair traveler brain, or for our educators that are out there, this is a great way for kids to learn about places if you're studying history or geography, architecture, art, you know, so many of these places also are those heritage sites as well. It has the cultural heritage as well as that architectural heritage. Um, and these you also get Canopy Kids with this, which is a lot of the PBS stations. So a lot of Dora or Arthur or, you know, your favorite Sesame Street characters or whatever it happens to be. You can go in and watch those. You know, it's a safe um, regulated site so that they can use that. And, you know, if you've got a family of 10 and you each have a library card, that's a lot of TV episodes that you can watch in the in the course of a month. So so many streaming services, so little time. So. And this one is absolutely and free. And this one's free. That's the best kind. So uh, let's wrap things up with uh, next Monday's Monday movie, as you're also uh, bringing a close to Black History Month with uh, Through a Lens Darkly. Yes, this is a documentary of early African-American photographers and their subjects. So, you know, really looking at how is it different to create an image on film using for people who have darker skin or for, you know, what did they consider worthy of being recorded on film when it was so much harder to carry the gigantic camera and have the plates and make sure that everything was clean and unbroken. Um, just really going to be one of those fascinating things. And more and more of these historic black pho photographs and photographers are being discovered and really shown off, um, highlighted as part of Black History Month and just in general, the culture that we have. Katie, thanks again. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much.